0: This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking with a urologist about male incontinence and a revolutionary new treatment, the Contino device. Wondering about COVID in Canada? We've got the lowdown. Want to stay young? The secret to the fountain of youth? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast begins now. Often women will say to me, why don't men leak urine? Why don't men have to go... Uh, through this well let me pull the finger out of the dike for you on that one men leak urine too and joining me on the line from toronto ontario is your very finest dr dean elterman urologist who largely deals with urinary incontinence in men he's also an assistant professor at the university of toronto and an attending urologist at the university health network good evening dr elterman
1: good evening Maureen. how
0: are you i'm fine thank you how are you I'm great. Oh, good. You survived the blue moon and the Mercury in retrograde, okay?
1: Oh yeah, it was it was snowing here tonight. I thought, oh my goodness, it's beginning already.
0: It certainly is. Oh my gosh. Anyway, well, well, good luck with that. Um, so, which can also make it more difficult for men or, or people who actually leak urine, um, because risk of falls and fractures is is a big issue for um, men who leak urine. Oftentimes, as I said earlier, people associate leakage of urine with little old ladies, but that's not necessarily the case case. When do men leak urine, Dr. Elterman?
1: Well, there's a number of reasons why men may leak urine. Uh, most commonly, it can be related to prostate surgery. We know that we're entering the month of Movember, and Movember is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, as you know, and it's extremely common for men. In fact, almost every man, once they have their prostate removed for prostate cancer, will have some temporary leakage. Now, the good news is is that more than 90, 95% of them will get their continence back. But certainly for a period of time, nearly all men will leak, and some will have persistent leakage. And then, of course, there are other bladder conditions like an overactive bladder uh, or some other post-surgical reasons why men may leak urine.
0: And uh, you know, oftentimes men are so surprised uh, after they've had the prostate, uh, the surgery for prostate cancer, and they'll say they had the nerve sparing procedure uh, and they were told that, you know, they, they weren't expecting to leak urine. Um, and so this is something, as you say, it will resolve. And is it just the tincture of time that actually helps with that?
1: Well, fortunately, it is. It does take time. And, uh, you know, when men get the diagnosis of prostate cancer, they're really focused on the treatment. They want the cancer out of their body, whether it's going to be through surgery or radiation. Um, but, of course, there are sexual side effects and continence or urinary side effects. And as I said, the good news is that by about a year, most men will still be continent. But it could be those first few weeks, those first few months, or even that first year or beyond where men are going to be leaking urine. And that's where uh, people like myself and other allied health professionals like pelvic floor physiotherapists really play a role to help men get through this period of time. Uh, There are a variety of strategies and treatments. And, of course, in the long term, if continence doesn't come back, but then we do have surgeries that could fix the leakage as well.
0: But as you say, that time after surgery, uh, and, you know, that can be several weeks or even up to a year that men are leaking, that can still be pretty depressing for them and pretty upsetting for them. They may have gone from, a you know, a physically fit, active man to a man who has to wear diapers.
1: Absolutely. It is extremely taxing. On men and uh, they can go, you know, prostate cancer happens to men in the prime of their lives in their late forties, fifties, sixties, and they're active and they want to get back to being active uh, and going from uh, still working uh, to having to, or like you said, a pad or a diaper or a clamp or something like that is, is really demoralizing and can really uh, get men down. So Uh, There are a number of excellent strategies uh, and options available to them, but uh, it can be one of the hardest things to go through once you've had the treatment for prostate cancer.
0: Men also may experience erectile dysfunction after uh, prostate surgery, but this can be even more distressing. Go ahead.
1: Well, they certainly do, but you know what? Um, When you're leaking all over yourself and you're leaking on your partner, almost the last thing you're thinking about is becoming sexually active. So it's, it's almost uh, an order priority deal with the cancer, deal with the leakage, and then last but not least, dealing with the sexual dysfunction. Uh, but we really want to try and work at all aspects almost simultaneously. But again, if you're leaking a lot, it's very difficult to engage in sexual activity.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I know it's more distressing for them than that erectile dysfunction. Um, so how about men with uh, BPH or benign prostatic hy- hypertrophy or hyperplasia? How do you, how, men uh, will leak urine with that as well?
1: They do, they do for a variety of reasons. We know that you know prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men affecting one in seven Canadians. Um, Canadian men. And BPH, or benign prostate enlargement, is even more common. It's actually 50% to 50-year-old men, and it goes all the way up to 80% of 80-year-old men. Uh, and what can happen is uh, by being obstructed by a big prostate, the bladder can actually start to become dysfunctional and you can develop an overactive bladder. So all of a sudden, you'll have this sudden urge. We have to rush to the bathroom and you may actually have leaks associated with that urge. It's called urgency incontinence. So essentially, you're just not able to make it there in time. And of course, sometimes when we do BPH surgery, there can be some temporary leakage as well
0: what are uh, how when a man presents to your office with uh, leakage of urine, how do you treat them generally? what what do you um, what's kind of the uh, your method or your your way of um, assessing and um, treatment and offering and what strategies do you offer?
1: yeah, well, we we first want to know the the cause, which is part of my job is to figure out why are they leaking, but if it's a fairly straightforward, Uh, post, say, prostate cancer treatment, uh, we know that they're going to be leaking and that leakage may uh, continue. Uh, And then it's really a matter of going in a stepwise approach. We always want to go from less invasive to more invasive if we have to. Uh, On the less invasive side, we know that pelvic floor physiotherapy with a registered pelvic floor physiotherapist uh, is excellent. There's great evidence showing that it can improve leakage, stop leakage, or make your continence come back sooner after surgery. Uh, That can be used with something called biofeedback, which is uh, a bit of an electrical feedback system to show you how well you're using those muscles. Uh, And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are actually surgeries uh, really reserved for men who continue to leak after a long period of time and aren't improving. And something like that might be a male, uh, sling similar to a female sling or something called an artificial urinary sphincter, which is a surgery. Um, and then we now have a sort of a new category, which are these minimally invasive solutions, uh, particularly for men who aren't, uh, surgical candidates, uh, or who aren't comfortable, uh, having just to wear pads, uh, or diapers. And so, um, One of those products that uh, we're doing a clinical trial on, actually, is called the uh, Contino. And this is a new, um, made in Canada, designed in Canada, uh, non-surgical urethral insert device. Um, And it's simple, uh, easy to use, and men use it themselves. uh, And it's been really successful so far in the clinical trials uh, that we've been conducting.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. And, and you also bring in allied health professionals like pelvic floor physiotherapists to help with instructing. And it's my understanding that men need um, some instruction, some guidance on the use of uh, Contino.
1: Yeah, we always work in a team. So we work very closely with uh, pelvic floor physiotherapists, uh, nurse continence advisors, uh, physician assistants and nurses uh, to help with uh, showing men uh, how to use the Contino device. Uh, but it just takes essentially a single session and they're they're ready to go.
0: And, and why is this so revolutionary?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, we really only have the options of containment, which is diapers, pads, condom catheters, uh, or surgery. And there isn't really anything in between. And for men who've just had a big operation like a radical prostatectomy where it's, uh, the uh, prostate is removed, the last thing they're thinking about is another operation. Uh, And so Contino is is really revolutionary in that it's small, it's discreet, it's easy to use, uh, and it's non-surgical. And it doesn't have to be used uh, for the long term either. So for men who are just going to be having, say, that leakage for the first, say, three months after their prostate surgery, it's a great option. And, of course, there are those other fewer men who will have persistent leakage or leakage from time to time, and they can use the Contino device then.
0: And are you recruiting patients for your study right now in Toronto?
1: We are. So some of our original work has been uh, presented at uh, large national and international conferences. uh, And we currently have and are recruiting patients for some of our ongoing clinical trials in Toronto. Uh, And if men are interested, they can look up uh, the Contino device. It's C-O-N-T-I-N-O. And we can recruit for our trials at Life. 360innovations.com slash clinical dash trials.
0: That's awesome. Um, What are some of the barriers to treatment um, that uh, men face in dealing with leakage of urine?
1: Uh, I think the biggest one is stigma and feeling embarrassed. Uh, I think honestly, um, there's a huge sense of losing control of your body, a huge sense of losing your masculinity Uh, when you start to leak urine after prostate surgery or for whatever other reason. Uh, And when you go into, say, the pharmacy, you see all the feminine hygiene products and and pads for women, and there's a small section for men. Um, But it's really uh, almost an issue of embarrassment. Uh, And then, of course, it's being able to find the right professional, whether it's a urologist uh, or a nurse continence advisor who you can actually talk to uh, and get the help that you need. Uh, And lastly, those professionals need to be informed about the latest uh, innovations that are available.
0: That is so true. And and I think that a lot of patients don't believe there is treatment for leakage of urine. I think they believe they're going to have to suffer with this.
1: Agree. I think there's a misconception in the general population, particularly with older patients, men and women, that leaking is just a part of getting older and you have to live with it. And uh, I think that's a huge uh, fallacy. It's totally not true. It's easily treated. It's often treated with something as simple as a medication or something as simple as going for physiotherapy. Uh, And now we have a non-surgical option uh, in the Contino product, uh, which is a very nice alternative uh, to operations or just wearing pads or diapers.
0: It, it certainly is and, and the men that I know who have used Contino have been so happy with it and they're, they've they got their life back. Again I know one dentist who used it and he was so depressed uh, when he came to see me and then after he was treated with uh, the help of his phys- physiotherapist and the Contino device he's happier than Larry as I like to say. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. Elterman, for joining me on the program tonight. If you want to just quickly say where men can go for that research study?
2: Yeah, so
1: we're, we'd love Again? to uh, have interested men uh, join us. It is at life 360 life 360 slash clinical
0: trials. Thank you so much. We'll definitely get you back, and good luck with the clinical trial. Is The assistant professor of viral pathogenesis at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. His research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. He comes in handy. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk.
2: You know, to live in the world of Trump, it would all be, uh, you know, just roses and smiles
0: everywhere. (laughs) It would be. I mean, it's just unbelievable. That one was my favorite. Ladies, I'm going to get your husbands back to work. I'm going to get them jobs. (laughs) Okay, does that mean we don't have to work inside and outside of the house? Any longer? Exactly. <laughs> Have you heard of dual income because it's so difficult <laughs> for all of us anyway? Um, I know you've been busy this week, Dr. Kinderchuk, trying to figure out what is going on in Manitoba. So that is my first question for you. What is going on in Manitoba with the rising you cases? You know, the, the best way I can put it into context is up until the end of
2: September, uh, Manitoba had had 20 fatal cases total for, for all of COVID uh, through 2020. In the past four weeks, there have been 55 fatalities. Um, You know, when when we left on July 15th for Saskatoon, there have been 300, 330 total cases. Um, You know, Friday, we had 480 that were announced. Um, It's, it's shocking uh, and trying to piece together, you know, what, what happened and, and when did things happen? Um, I think is going to be a a long term uh, study to try and recognize how to better prepare. But man, it it is not a good situation at all right now.
0: Are there any signals? Are there any signs? Is is the contact tracing helping? Um, Was it people were complacent or they just didn't think it affected them? You know, it,
2: it, I've talked to a lot of, uh, of, of healthcare worker friends and, and colleagues over the past few days, and certainly a lot of infectious disease colleagues trying to kind of piece together, you know, what, what, what was all underlying this, and I think it's a combination of so many things. I mean, that, listen, the, the complacency aspect is, is a massive, massive part of this, even for ourselves when, you know, when we were kind of in early spring and early summer and uh, when we were still in Manitoba, it was difficult to not get caught up in that idea that yeah, things are pretty normal. I mean, we, we had a 13 day stretch with no cases. It it, it was as if 2019 had kind of sprung back into life. Um, you know, so you couple that with, uh, you know, I think maybe a, a lack of, of complete preparedness. We know that there was supposed to be some extra funding going into, uh, into testing. We know that there certainly have been backlogs in testing uh, the past week or so um, healthcare workers are coming forward, talking about, you know, the fact that we've hit capacity, um, but they also are, are starting to get into positions where they're running out of uh, resources, in, including personnel, um, you add in all these factors together. And, and the problem is is that they're all synergistic. They all you know, become additive in, in uh, you know, the, the ultimate toll that they take on the population. So I, I think that's where we sit right now is, unfortunately, we don't have time to really figure out what went wrong. We have to find a strategy or strategies to get through this. And it's not going to be easy.
0: Well, I mean, with all due respect, do do you have to find out what went wrong? What went sideways in order to prevent uh, more cases? And there was quite a significant surge in the last couple of days.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and, and certainly there there needs to be that aspect. But you know, the unfortunate reality is we we certainly know that long term care facilities have gotten hit very hard. I think we've had 15 outbreaks, or yeah, 15 outbreaks in, in different facilities right now. Um, fatalities obviously are, are stretching across different age groups. Um, you know, so I, I think the most important aspect is first of all uh, trying to ensure that that we have good good protection in in our healthcare system. So making sure that that we actually have that surge capacity. Uh, to be able to compensate not only for COVID, but obviously for, for every other uh, underlying health issue that that's being seen right now in the hospitals. Um, so I, I think you have to get that on par first and then start to try and figure out, okay, well, how do we address testing? How do we address contact tracing? How do we get more people to to take up the, the COVID alert app? How do we start to re-strategize all of our restrictions um, how do we you know, try to understand better what transmission is like within, uh, you know, within children, but also from children to adults? Because I think that's still a gray area as well. So, so it, it is really, you know, a bunch of different variables that, uh, that, that we're trying to answer questions on for, for a brand new virus.
0: Right, I mean, there, there are just so many questions that we have. You know, my philosophy is and I take this quite seriously. I view everybody and I and I have to do this in my work as well. Everybody is asymptomatic positive. But yeah. it's um but it's my understanding that in hospitals and you know pretty top-notch hospitals they're only um, having nurses and and other healthcare workers wear full PPE protection, uh, mask, shield, gown, gloves. Booties, uh, if somebody has been confirmed COVID. And I know a couple of nurses who are now sick with COVID, quite sick, after having been exposed because they were not allowed to wear um, PPE protection. Uh, for every patient that they encounter, and two of them worked on wards where there were, you know, they were the COVID wards. It was the uh, wards where patients were who were COVID positive were sent, but they were also sent with other patients who were not deemed COVID positive.
2: Well, and I think that's the the issue for us, right? Is we're we're still scrambling, trying to understand what what transmission looks like. You know, who who transmits when, and how do they transmit? Um, and this, you know, this is where we, we are in this kind of you know, black box of, of COVID. It's still, you know, 20 percent you know, of people are responsible for 80 percent of cases. And we don't really understand why that is. Um, so you start looking at, uh, you know, in our healthcare facilities, how do we better protect people? Um, because the simple fact is, is that we have a you know, really a non-renewable resource. Uh, whether you know we're looking at infection prevention control folks, whether we're looking at physicians, whether we're looking at nurses, um, you know, uh, clerical staff, um, all these people are you know are, are absolutely required to to make the operations move forward, and, and we just don't have, uh, I think, frankly, that that surge capacity um, in Manitoba. So very thankfully, you know, colleagues are are starting to step forward. We're seeing um, you know certainly physicians step, stepping forward to talk about the issues that they're facing to try and push. Um, the government, but I think really, you know, Winnipeg and in Manitoba stand out as as being an exercise in in cautious optimism um, for, for communities that seemingly have been able to get through COVID because it it simply can come back uh, unbelievably quickly and, and really burn like a, a raging forest fire.
0: Absolutely, and in British Columbia they have uh, set up the safe six, which uh, you know has not been communicated. It, it's a tough. Um, philosophy to understand and, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people are interpreting it in their own way. Uh, Jody Vance of uh, CKW has written a fabulous uh, article of describing how Safe6 actually works. But people are, you know, kind of laughing at it and saying things like, well, I have six people a day in my house. Uh, it's meant to be the same six people and you determine who they are and you are part of their Safe6 as well to try to minimize that gathering, um, but also the Provincial Health officer said that um, you know some homes and, and many people's homes are, are not large enough to accommodate mm-hmm. uh, people you know so that they would maintain be able to maintain physical distance or certainly not uh, to isolate and so was recommending ga- having gatherings in restaurants. This is this is something that I feel very strongly about um, that the restaurants are not standardized in terms of their infection control practices. They're oftentimes uh, you know having kids. The kids are hired to work there. I know somebody who. Worked as, in a very high-end restaurant. And when he was serving, he dropped the dinner on the floor. This is a true story. And the chef told him to pick it up and put it back on the plate. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, the other thing is that there. Um, you know, somebody else mentioned that they were eating in an indoor restaurant. I, I just, I just think the risk is just so much greater indoors. But, but she said, well, you know, we it's an open kitchen and you can see the chefs. But and they're not screaming at other people. You know, chefs have a reputation that they're gonna, yeah. you know, yeah, they are. They're calling out orders. They're this. They, you know, who knows if they've, you know, sneezed on on your chicken cutlet, <laughs> um, yeah. or or whatever. Wipe their nose and you know what? Drop something or touch something. And there's multiple touch points. And, and so I just think the indoor restaurants, you know, I, I hate to say that because I know it's affected so many people's livelihoods, but I think it's a dangerous place. And we need to rethink that and, and um, do the takeout, do the outdoor restaurants, get the heating. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
2: Oh, absolutely. Right. And I think our perception is still that when we think about transmission, you know, it's based, unfortunately, on things like contagion and, uh, and outbreak, where we think that somebody is physically sick, they cough on somebody else, and that's where the cycle starts. With this virus, we, you know, yes, that happens in some instances, but we also know in a lot of cases it seems to transmit uh, very widely without any of those instances occurring, and, and we can't predict when that's going to happen. What we do know is enclosed spaces will will increase the risk. So certainly, uh, you know, I think in Winnipeg, you know, there's been a, a lot of question about how long uh, we had left, uh, you know, in uh, in restaurant dining open for as cases started to surge. Um, And and thankfully, you know, thankfully, tomorrow things are starting to change. But there is that aspect of saying, you know, we have to look at this from a risk mitigation standpoint and understand where the the biggest presence of virus potentially is and and try and get rid of those breakpoints, because otherwise we can't control what, what may happen.
0: Right. And, you know, healthcare professionals are educated about infection control practices, but this is not something that that people in restaurants have been. I mean, they have food safe, but they have not, um, you know, been taught to go from clean to dirty and, you know, mm-hmm. sterile technique and, you know, being very careful. Hand washing is a challenge for a lot of people. Um, but so I think that's lacking. I think there needs to be a lot more education around that. And, and of course, um, for people going back to work as well. We all want to live forever, or do we? Because sometimes quality of life may impact that decision. When I see people who look younger than their stated age, I often th- wonder just how much Botox have they had, or fillers, <laughs> or other procedures. As Mark Twain said, life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. Well, my next guest is a gentleman of 80 years of age, who has found the fountain of youth and he's here to tell us all about it. Good evening, Brian.
3: Well, good evening, Maureen.
0: How are you doing? Good. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Okay, How good. How do we have? <laughs> We have forever, Brian. We have oh, forever.
3: Yeah. I want you to know that Andy Warhol promised me 15 minutes.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if I can give you 15 minutes. You'll have to come back for more fame, but uh, okay. but we've got lots of time. I've cleared the schedule for you. <laughs>
1: okay. Oh, you're kind.
0: Um, now, as I mentioned, uh, you're 80 years old, and mm-hmm. uh, and you seem to have found uh, the Fountain of Youth. First of all, you look a heck of a lot younger than that. I was really surprised to uh, learn that you were 80 years old. Uh, I think I met you when you were 79, actually. (laughs) Um, And you're still working. Yes. So why are you working at 80? And what does it take to be employed at the age of 80?
3: Well, allow me, first of all, to tell you what happened that Friday end of work. (laughs) And it dovetails right into the issue we're talking about. Right?
0: Okay, Johnny
3: Dale, my boss. Great you know, guy. He's in charge of the Ryan, Ryan's Rental movie at the Pacific Coliseum.
0: <laughs> you know, yes, I do know he, Johnny, and he's fantastic. Yeah. He is the best construction, as uh, the best construction company I've ever seen. And well, he's great, fantastic. Anyway, he yeah.
3: found out I was on your show, and he came and asked me what I was going to talk about.
0: <laughs> and I said retirement
3: and he instantly responded oh my god to stop doing what you love is like stepping off a cliff maureen it's the same sentiment today as it was 20 40 60 years ago and then the time we have and that you've given me i'm going to concentrate just on two things one one's attitude which is to me the most important and one's body now i'm a voracious reader and i've been reading a long time and in my 20s i read ernest hemingway the great american writer who wrote a sentence that's haunted me for 60 years and hopefully will haunt me for another 60 years my retirement is mixed up in it and it's a brutal sentence until you understand it and it echoes johnny's reaction And in, it's kind of sad. Anyway, Hemingway wrote, retirement is the ugliest word in the English language. Of course, what 80 years of living gives us, Maureen, is the meaning of these words. What Hemingway meant is, it is difficult to face yourself. All you've done, all you still have to do, You have a past, a history, you're older and wiser and you can look back and see all the patterns in it, all the mistakes, and you have a future still, something you can fix or work at, and at the end of that future is a shadowy world called mortality. Of course, we know what happened to Hemingway. After winning the Nobel Prize, he shot himself at 62. Well, for me... It wasn't my books that uh, provided the direction for myself. It was my son, Sammy. In his final years at Waldorf School, he had to do a project in which he quoted an old Italian saying, and I paraphrase here, a man's attitude is the landscape of his soul, the landscape of the soul. I took this to mean and still take it to mean, One must live for something other than oneself, live for something larger, like science or beauty, like truth, like goodness. I mean, even, even, um, oh, no, I forget his name anyway. Like a landscape, an environment, nature, a planet. You must live something beyond your family, Beyond your money, beyond your fame, that includes all of this and keeps the world viable. Now, in an age of narcissism and self-aggrandizement and hyper-individualism, it's not easy to do. Well, I went back to the 60s and revived all the back, back to nature, back to the land values that have since reemerged as the climate change crisis. I dove in with the attitude to go below the surface of things. To learn in depth the science, the history, the personalities, the programs, the models. Take an interest in the most pressing and coming problem mankind has had to face. No, I couldn't do anything simple like adopt a polar bear. But I decided to save the world from itself. The movies allowed me the flexibility to do this while still remaining, remaining part of the mainstream of the culture without getting isolated or fragmented. So to me, this is the number one priority and like everything else, attitude in life and it must be continuously earned and continuously nurtured. And that is our real work. For example, in 2015, I ended up in Paris at the COP21 at the at the the great climate change conference that everybody refers back to. And there I discovered two important things. How much trouble we are really in, and how much the power structure has abandoned humanity on this issue. And to update, to me, Trump did build his wall. It is a wall of ignorance, which has drowned out our science. It's screaming at us, our last and final warning. Maureen, few can hear it. This is all going to make COVID look like a little shadow play. And the, but there is good news. Because there, there was a solution. And it came from Canada, from Professor Vladislav Schmiel, the greatest ecological writer in the world today. Yes, he's a Canadian, and he lives in Winnipeg. Bill Gates discovered him about six year, years ago. But the rest of the world of science knows him. And he says the most dreaded word in the English language now and the most avoided word in every other language of the world is limits. We're all going to have to reconsider our wants and what our wants and desires are. Maureen, all of us are going to have to learn to live with less isn't this enough to keep you going till 80 and beyond the millennials will need the wisdom of the 80 year olds so we must keep working now how do you keep your energy up to do something like this well let me tell you how i keep my energy up and it'll dovetail exactly into what covid's all about super immunity and super community I studied the oldest and active people on earth, the Southern Italians, the Sardinians, the Hansas, the Okinawans, the people of the Greek islands, pointed out to me by, by my favorite Greek translator, Mary Van Eaton. In short, they built a way of life that disciplines them with built-in disciplines. Disciplines that lead to camaraderie and community, to sustainability, and to real food and real health. So much so, they rarely have to fixate on these things. And who wants to fixate on their body? Who wants to spend all day on a body that will soon turn to dust or ashes? I was talking one day with one of the gurus, one of the builders of the movie industry in Vancouver, on you know, Kabilka. And he said... There's an obvious but subtle secret to the movie industry. We could all exploit it and learn from it. It's called diversity. We never build the same set. The shows are always entirely new. The venue's usually different. We're always pushed into new areas to meet new people, we're pushed into areas of ourselves we never knew existed, and we're challenged. It keeps us vigorous and alive. Do not stay away from such a fountain too long. I took his advice. Uh So the movies are my built-in disciplines. And it gives me four things to do every day. And guess what? It pays me to do it. I do intermittent exercises. I do intermittent fasting. So from three or four days a week while I work, I don't eat. My breakfast, so I get 18 hours till 12 from 7 o'clock at night till 1230, right? And my organs get a chance to rest. And my food is that I eat uh, nutrient-dense foods, and I make salad my main meal because the most nutritious food, the most dense nutrients per calorie on the planet is from weeds, arugula. Romaine lettuce, dandelion, which is Italian's right to go to my mother and collect. And so I make salad my main meal. And I put sardines in it, and I put calf's liver, and I put some things in but I eat as much as I want of it. And I was lucky in, in, in life. The love of my life owned a health food store, and she taught me about supplements, because our soil is being depleted. So I have a little supplement regime I take every day. I take my apple cider vinegar and lemon juice first thing in the morning. Then I take vitamin D3 plus K2 for for calcium distribution. I take um, vitamin C after Linus Pauling and Dr. Eugene Rogers. I take kelp for uh, iodine. I take zinc for my prostate and with copper and selenium and milk thistle. Now, isn't it interesting that when the COVID came, all the scientists are telling us take all of this stuff. And all of this leads me to my final thing. I get to meet the greatest treasures in life, the rich, rich souls. Because every time I go into into a new movie, it's like a little village. And everybody there, I'm not unusual. A lot of people there are like me. They incidentally work in the movies. They are sculptors. They are painters who incidentally work in the movies. They have libraries they're building. They have their thinkers who incidentally they're anarchists. And and in the movie construction business itself, there are many, many world-class musicians have been all over the world playing. Uh So, that's what you gain from working. And 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 now I want you to know, but I want you to know.
0: There's nurses there too now, I want to say. In the movie industry.
3: (laughs) The nurses, yes, the the nurses. Well, you you expand us. (laughs) We're now getting under the press, right? (laughs) But I I really want you to know and your listeners to know. None of which I said is a belief system. They are knowledge systems. And you don't have to be standing on a building to say to yourself, you know, do I believe in gravity? The planet is heating extraordinarily. There is an enormous amount of work to do. And isn't this enough to keep us going? There's my spiel.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Now you had one. uh, We've got to go to break, uh, Brian. Thank you so much. That was so lovely and so sweet. You had a quick, uh, you're writing a book with uh, people in the movie industry. Yes,
3: I have a group of people in the movies that were, were developing a series of children's books, a new concept of what a book is. Of course, it's about awareness of climate change. And if we are successful, I want you to invite us back.
0: Oh, of course. The invite. Uh, You have a standing invite with me, Brian. And
3: I leave leave you with the saying, to know retirement is to forget retirement.
0: We're talking a lot about mental health and anxiety and self-confidence tonight. And all of those are such important aspects of life that allow you to enjoy life not endure life after all life is to be enjoyed and so many people struggle at so many different times of life we worry about what other people think when really other people don't even know you're living now you might think that sounds harsh but it's not i am telling you that people are worried about themselves yes we do have people who judge others and look down upon others and you know for those people i feel sorry for them and we do have have the miserable people in life. And I've certainly encountered miserable people in my day. And uh, And you just think, oh, they, they actually are infectious. They make you miserable as well. And sometimes it's really difficult to speak up to them. And I myself have an issue, have a problem speaking up to people who are nasty, because I'm honestly so gobsmacked that people actually... <laughs> treat other people that way, I am still gobsmacked about it. And so I'm a perfect target for those people to just snap at me or to just to call out my mistakes in front of other people or for people to just come, you know, just come to wherever they are, whether it be a party or at work and just be miserable, complain about other people, be cynical. I mean, those are just the nasty people of life. And you know what? I don't think they feel that great about themselves. And so really you have nothing to worry about. Every now and again, I, uh, in my clinical practice, I encounter patients who uh, identify as something other than one might expect. And, and so they may have been born as a male, but really identify as a female. You know, I will, I will say that um, I I have cross-dressers in my clinical practice. And I, there was a time when, you know, I'll, I'll have to say to my my MOAs, medical office assistants. Um, you know, this person has a man's name, but will be coming here in a skirt and, and high heels. And because I don't want them to cast this look at them of shock, like, wait a minute, you can't be this person. And you know, because uh, you know, people, whenever we feel different from anyone else, we always we, we somehow feel less. We all want to belong, but guess what? We are all different, and that is what makes us beautiful. But every now and again, I will have a. Uh, patient, present to my clinical practice, who is um, gender non-binary, and oftentimes people just don't understand what that is, and it's an umbrella term that describes people who identify with a gender outside of the gender binary. And it is categorized under the trans umbrella term, although not all non binary people identify as trans. So it can become a little bit confusing. The word non binary describes a wide array of different identities that fall outside of the gender binary. And that can be related to or completely separate from male and female gender identities. We think of just you're male or you're female. That's it. We see you at birth. We are, we are assigning this to you but that may not be the case. The gender binary assumes that all people are either male or female, man or woman, girl or boy. But people who identify as a man or a woman identify as binary gender since they identify with a gender within the system of the gender binary. Does that make sense? A non-binary person identifies with a gender that is not male, and it is not female. But there are a number of non-binary genders that exist. There's a number of different ones that exist outside the gender binary, male or female. And so some of those are agender. So there are people who have no gender or they are genderless. This is how they live in the world. Androgen, that identifies somewhere in between man and a woman. There's bigender, and that may be somebody who has two gender identities. They could, It can be at the same time, or it can be interchangeable. You can see where this would cause anxiety for somebody to present to the world in one of these ways, whether they are demigirl or demiboy, so partially but not completely identifying as a girl or a boy, or, or demigender, their partial connection with one gender, and it could be male. Or female. They can be gender fluid, meaning that they move between two or more gender identities at different times in different circumstances. Or gender queer is a non normative or queer gender, and there's no exclusive connection to any gender. Multigender, uh, non binary gender can be. Um, And so there's also pangender, having many or all genders within one's culture. And transmasculine or transmasc, as people say, it's a person assigned female at birth. So they would be AFAB. They identify with a masculine gender, but does not necessarily identify as a man. Even for these people, it can be confusing. It can be scary. Nobody understands them. This is what I have heard from people. Their parents don't understand them. They may present with a gynecological or urological problem that is very, very distressing for them because they don't know where to turn and they are also extremely fearful of some of the treatments. And oftentimes they will self-diagnose or they've been given the wrong diagnosis and it's also tied to how they feel about themselves in this life. It's difficult enough for us. And one of the biggest problems that I have found with people who are non binary or gender non binary is that they're not accepted by other people. They struggle as to who they are or who they present to themselves and or they who who they present, you know, the themselves that they present to you. And and me and everybody in the world, and then that person doesn't understand, which is why I wanted to educate you about this tonight. People often don't understand what being non-binary means, and and so for those people who are s- this non-binary, um, it's you know it can be very difficult for them because they're always fearful that somebody is judging them or that somebody is. Uh, doesn't accept them or that they are somehow extremely different um, than the rest of the people in this world. And so that can cause tremendous mental distress for people. Um, And, you know, as I say, uh, life is to be enjoyed, not endured. Just like trans men and women, uh, there's no requirement for how a non-binary person transitions. And so they may want to transition. They may not. But they may opt to have surgeries to affirm their gender. So they may want to have a breast reduction or breast implantation or genital reconstruction. Uh, Non-binary people may also choose to transition with hormones like testosterone or estrogen. And this is all in an effort to make their lives better, but ultimately they want to be comfortable in their own bodies and they want you to be comfortable and they want to be accepted. And and so this also affects their self-confidence. And so because people aren't accepted or they're feeling different, they may feel less than. Uh, Anyone who identifies, anyone who does, sorry, um, anyone who does not identify as a man or a woman would be considered gender non-binary. And uh, they they tend to use uh, one set of pronouns to describe themselves, but also can choose to use two or more sets of pronouns or even all pronouns. There's no one way to be non-binary, but I will tell you that it can be a struggle for a lot of people. and um and when we judge others and or when we're mean or when we discriminate, Or when we're hateful or we gossip or we treat people poorly because they're different. But think about it. Everybody is different. We just show how miserable we are. Anyway, I choose to love and accept everybody. That's my way.